Welcome to episode 41 of The UC Architects, the world's most popular exchange, link, and Office 365 podcast. Recorded on Sunday, the 3rd of August, 2014, I'm your host, Exchange MVP, Steve Goodman. On today's show, we'll be talking as ever about what's hot and what's not in the Microsoft UC world, and bringing you this week's latest news. But before we do... This UC Architects episode is sponsored by Instant Technologies, experts in enterprise click-to-chat and e-discovery solutions. Instant Technologies announces Instant Chime for Microsoft Link. Transform your service desk with Chime and move your support operations from endangered species to wise enterprise. Start your Chime trial today at www.adchime.com and join the conversation on Twitter via at Team Instant. And eNow is offering all UC Architect listeners a free $50 Amazon gift card when you install Mailscape for Exchange or Uniscope for Link. eNow's award-winning dashboard helps admins quickly and effectively monitor servers and create custom reports. Try Mailscape or Uniscape's free 21-day trial, get a $50 gift card, and see how eNow makes admin life simplified. Simply click on the link in the blog to sign up. And this week I'm joined by Pat Richard, Stole Hansen, and Tom Arbuthnot. Hello, guys. Hey, Steve. Hey. Steve. So... We're going to go straight into today's top stories. This may be a slightly shorter episode than normal because it's boiling over here in the UK and I've got all the windows shut uh, to keep the noise down. So uh, if we're under an hour, then hopefully you'll be quite pleased because I do get told that uh, sometimes the shows hosted by myself do run on a little bit. So the heat is going to keep me short. That could sound wrong. Anyway, on to today's top stories. Microsoft have been ordered to hand over overseas email, uh, which is apparently uh, throwing EU privacy rights straight into the fire. So this isn't the first time this has happened. Um, but has everyone been following this story? Yeah, I have. So, uh, opinions so far. I mean, I'd be interested, Pat, to hear as a US citizen what you think about this. Well, I, I think Microsoft is in the right in, in fighting against having to uh, fork over these records, and, and I applaud them for, um, you know, continuing to fight this fight. Um, unfortunately, I don't think they're going to become very successful. I think the courts are eventually going to force them to, uh, to turn over the records. And, um, and that's sad. I, I think there should be a, a certain amount of privacy available here, but, uh, you know, who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Well, as someone outside of the US, and I know I'm not alone in thinking this, we see we see it as a simple conflict of, of interest. I mean, Microsoft say that 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 they uh, con- if they control the data, then they should hand it over to the US if they're told to. However, they're not able to do that surely because they can't ask someone in Dublin to break EU law. So. Even if the FBI or whoever's behind this uh, determine that they should hand over the data, then will they have to? I mean, how can, you know, if I was told to do something by somebody in the US and it's illegal in the UK, I couldn't do it. Simple as. I don't care what America says because I don't live there. 
and they don't have any jurisdiction over me. So this server in Dublin, or this data in Dublin, the operations team, India, wherever they are, Microsoft in the US can't tell them to do something illegal, surely. I mean, does it does it matter even if the U.S. rule that they've got to hand over the data? Well, I, I, I think what's at play here is the fact that, um, you know, Microsoft is a U.S. corporation, headquarters based in the U.S., um, and, and I think that's how the government is kind of angling it, that, you know, we don't care where the server specifically sits. You're a U.S. corporation in the U.S., and yeah. you have to adhere to U.S. law. I think what may end up happening is you'll see, um, you know, Microsoft ultimately ordered to hand it over, and you'll see, you know, other governments pipe up and say, no, hold on, you know, we're going to have a problem with that. And I'm actually kind of surprised that that really hasn't become more of an issue already this far into the fight. Well, there's been a, a quote, and I can't, I'm not going to try and quote it word for word, uh, but from someone, an Irish judge or ex-judge saying that as far as they're concerned they're not that they've not been uh they've not authorized that data to be released so it can't be released because i i understand the theory of it that surely if someone in microsoft headquarters says you uh you know you, you work in the office 365 product group you've got access in engineering to the servers i want you to go under the hood and get this data out theoretically that might be possible but if I was Microsoft, I would be readjusting the way that the admin was set up, so that couldn't happen in advance of, or to mitigate against this whole issue in the first place. Because, for example, if it was a subsidiary uh, that of a, uh, that runs the data center, it's a completely separate tenant. The data, uh, the data that's in those data centers, is not part of a single massive AD forest that's that's rooted in the US, then surely you couldn't force them to do it. Whereas if it was like a normal US corporation where it's just, you know, a DAG that stretches over to the US and it's got some in the US and some in Dublin, then of course the admins in the US would be very, very easily able to get to the data. Uh, well, I, so here, here's the problem that I see with that is, is what was the administrative access at the point that this event occurred, because they can't change it now after the fact and, and expect to use that as a defense uh, in their court case. Um, they're they're kind of stuck with whatever it was at the time that, you know, these records uh, uh, were created. So the fact that, you know, U.S. admins have access to that records, I think, is going to be sufficient. Well, I suppose all we can do is hope that they don't. Uh, the, the the one thing that they don't tell you is where they do administer the services from, but it's you know it's pretty obvious that that, that it must be possible to do it centrally. I just hope, I I, I just hope that this they they put the safeguards in place to try and mitigate against this in the first place because it, the theory is it shouldn't be possible for them to do it. Uh, it's, it's otherwise it completely undermines the whole point of having EU or or tenants based in particular countries. If it's still, you know, if someone is an enterprise admin in the US, I suppose the the other thing that tells us that it's definitely going to be people in the US that can look after this is uh, is uh, American conferences like that. I'm sure they've said that if the service goes wrong. It's them that get uh, the call to fix it, which probably means that it is people in Redmond that get woken up in the middle of the night. So, yeah, yeah I suppose my point's null and void. Yeah, or, and, and not even, 
I was going to say not even people in Redmond. It could be people on any other um, administrative site, you know, globally. Well, that's so the point. It, it just muddies the problem even more. Well, that's the point. If it's outside of Redmond or it's outside of the U.S., then it doesn't matter, does it? Because it's outside of the U.S. But if it is people who are administrators in the in the U.S., then of course they've got to do as they're told. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a lawyer, however, so I could be completely talking out my ass. <laughs> and probably yeah. it, it, it seems to be more beyond just a technical question though doesn't it it's American companies and data abroad so I mean it's going to affect other American companies as well and I think the American government have got to look at it from a kind of a, a company revenue point of view they're, they're impacting American companies making money in some respects if they do things like this yeah I mean perhaps that angle hasn't been been in the press enough I mean surely it's in the interests of the US to protect its economic interests first and foremost before trying to make things easier for law enforcement because that's what it sounds like it's about making things easier like they could go via a judge in dublin but they'd prefer to just be able to get access straight to that data someone should step in maybe and uh, and put a stop to it then before it starts to impact other u.s companies yeah, this will definitely be a test case. Well, moving on to some different news then. Uh, Microsoft are getting rid of a few different conferences. So it's not a good news week, is it? Um, or perhaps it's fantastic news, depending on how close you live to Chicago. Uh, if John was on this week's podcast, he'd probably be pretty pleased about some of this. Uh, because the replacement... Or, or expansion of TechEd next year in North America is going to be Microsoft's Unified Technology Event for Enterprises. Uh, the, the, where it's the bad news, perhaps, is is where the Link Conference, the SharePoint Conference, uh, the Microsoft Exchange Conference, and uh, I, I think others as well are all getting uh, rolled in to this one big technology event. What could go wrong? It sounds like it's going to be absolutely massive, though. Uh, for example, the SharePoint conference has some is it 10, 20,000 attendees mm-hmm. added on to TechEd. And, of course, you know the, uh, the few thousand, uh, is it two, 3,000 that you get at uh, MEC and the Link conference? Uh, it's going to be quite a big conference, even if 75% of those are able to attend. So, Link MVPs, you know, the Link conference is, you know, relatively new compared to things like Mech going and coming back. What's your take on this? Good thing? Bad thing? Yes. (laughs) So, I I think um, the first good thing that I I see about it is it's a five-day conference, and um, that's a good thing from a a Link conference perspective. Um, It means that we could potentially have more time slots for um, sessions. it's a bad thing in that um, the numbers I've seen being thrown around are expected uh, attendance of about 15,000 people. And even though we've heard that, you know, this is likely going to be, you know, uh, the link the link part will be a, a conference within a conference and the same for Mac and things like that, um, I still think we're going to have the same problems that we've had two years at the link conference in that you're going to have some sessions that are just completely jam-packed and uh, people will still be fighting for seats in some of the uh, the more popular sessions. Um, you know, even though they're going to be at uh, a, a bigger venue uh, as compared to the last two link conferences, I, I still think we're going to have a problem with 
with uh, having enough seats for some of these sessions. And that's that's a lot of uh, very concerning, um, you know. And 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 having gone to both Mech and the Link Conference, um, they each have their own uh, atmosphere. Um, and I think that's going to be somewhat lost at uh, at this big conference. On the flip side, uh, people that are um, uh, focused on both Exchange and Link will be able to go to one conference and uh, get some content for each of those. Uh, on the downside, now you have companies that are going to be sending you know a ton of Link people and a ton of Exchange people all out at the same time. Uh, during that week, and I think that's, uh, in, in fact, I, I know I've seen some uh, uh, some grumbling about that from, from some uh, attendees and, uh, and companies. So uh, good and bad. I'm looking forward to it. Um, it's not terribly far from me. I can drive. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to take over John Cook's house and have a big party. And uh, the, so the use- Is that the provisional place for the UC Architects party? John's house. <laughs> no, uh, but but you know, since you mentioned uh, the UC Architects pa- uh, party, uh, it is an advantage for us because we can just throw one huge party instead of trying to split our resources uh, uh, to a couple different conferences, and uh, we'll have some announcements on that uh, here in the coming months. But uh, it'll be off the hook, I assure you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a reasonably good thing. Mainly as a UK-based person, I don't want to have to go lots of times to the US to different conferences and try and make that that argument, you know, two or three times. Uh, that's why I'll only get to go to you know one conference a year because having a young family, I don't. It's a big, big trip over. Um, but I do hope it is mini conferences and they can retain some of that spirit. Stolly, what do you think? Well, I, I I think it's a good thing um, having um, a big conference where you get to meet uh, all these people. And um, what Microsoft said was that um, they they now can send their product teams over and and maybe they actually can get to work uh, on the products uh, in between conferences now, because uh, I guess there was a lot of different conferences for Microsoft. So um, for for my perspective, um, I, I think. Um, the expo area maybe will be not that uh, link specific as it was in the link conference. It will be more general. I hope they will place the link vendors in the same area or tag them in some way, some way so it's easier to find link vendors uh, in, in the expo area. And that was some something I liked at the link conference where you walked around and everyone was about link. So do you think perhaps uh, it should be a base price ticket for the tech ed equivalent and then you add on the com- the other conferences you want? So if no. you want to get the deep dive link content, no? No. No. It's one event. I mean, you, it, I, I think it's hard to justify splitting those uh, costs out. I mean, you've got definitely got some crossover with uh, some of the events. Um, and... If you do that, then you're going to end up with people who would normally see a benefit from the conference being combined, not being able to see that because they'll be stuck with having to choose the the you know least expensive option for uh, you know for their general role. I mean, it, you know, it'd be nice as a link person to be able to go to say a SCOM session or something to kind of help round out the skill set for things that uh, uh, link involves. And I, I think that's a, a key advantage to combining 
uh, all these conferences into one. And, and if you start coming up with all these different price points for for attendees, I, I think you you start to lose some of that because you know eventually managers are going to say, well. Yeah, it's a combined conference, but you know we just want you to go to the the link session, and and there could be some very valuable um, content that's available that they wouldn't be able to see. So Tom, yeah, I agree with that. I think if you look look at the way the stack's going in terms of particularly the Office 365 licensing and and online services, you're getting the complete stack now in a lot of companies. So being able to see it all makes a lot of sense. Um, obviously, it's 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 a shame in some respects that we don't have. The dedicated conference where everybody gets to roll around and everybody knows Link and everybody talks about Link. But I think if you look at the way things are going, it kind of makes sense to have a, a conference covering all the products, really. So, uh, you know, as a, a new father, do you, do you think it's a good thing or bad thing that you might go away less, or would you rather be getting? <laughs> I'm, more, so, I'm so I'm so saying good thing, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I, uh, my wife is due any time and i'm thinking oh god i'm gonna lose sleep again and i usually like getting home for seven every night you know to make sure that wherever i can i can, can put my daughter to bed but part of me is thinking okay it wouldn't be so bad if i was away for a whole week and then i get proper because i'm not going to get sleep again so there's a plus side to more conferences even when you've got small children well that, that's that's true but uh, on the flip side, back to my earlier comment about, you know, expenses and stuff, you know, people, um, you know, like me, we go to the Link Conference, we go to the MVP uh, Summit, um, getting a tech ad is a different story. Um, you know, some companies look at that and, and say, well, you know, there's already a conference for the dedicated product that you're focused on. So, you know, we'll just have you go to that one and not go to tech ad or something else. So, um, I, I like to go to conferences. I would love to go to one, you know, every couple of months. But um, I, I think uh, having a combined one's gonna uh, gonna be nice there as well. Well, I think there is uh, going to be an opportunity for the community having um, the more dedicated conferences if they want. and uh, and now there's room for it in the calendar as well since Microsoft is consolidating their conferences. Yeah, I think well, yeah, we might oh go ahead Steve. Uh, what one thing I, I've seen of recent conferences is uh, especially ones like Tech is less slots for. Uh, external non-Microsoft speakers who are giving that real-world non-marketing advice. So what? maybe this yeah, maybe this will mean that, more. I, I don't necessarily agree that there's less spots. I mean, you know, we don't know exactly the layout of the facility that we're going to be in. You know, if we take what was available at Mac or what was available at uh, Link Conference, um, from from what I've heard and read. Um, Microsoft is assuring that the amount of content is not going down for those. So that's good. <laughs> um, my concern is, you know, okay, we have a five-day conference. I'd love to see five days of, of uh, link sessions. But uh, I also want to go to maybe an exchange session or two. And, and so now we're going to have a problem with, you know, um, you know, your schedule builder having, you know, triple and quad bookings for each time slot. But I, I don't think we're going to see any less content than we've seen in the past. But one, one thing you seem to get is the duplication of sessions at different conferences, uh, especially the you know the, the Ross Smith, Scott Schnoll the sessions that everybody wants. And you get the, sort of the version one, version two uh, at, each, at each conference. And, of course, because they don't have to, to 
repeat those over and over again at two or three different conferences perhaps that means there'll be more you know if whether it's internal microsoft people that don't usually get to speak for example the 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 mech deep dive into how they run the service kind of sessions you know more room for those kind of ones uh in addition to the the standard ones that are aimed perhaps at a more general or generalist population. Yeah, I I could see that. So overall, it doesn't sound like we think it's a bad thing. Uh, The the other area that that sort of struck me as a potential issue is where you can send more than one person to a conference and or Mm -hmm. where there's uh, five conferences in a year and you send one or two people to each one. Imagine going to your, your management and saying, well, I want to send all 10 to this one. Uh, the, I think you, you brushed on it slightly, you know, sending all those people out at the same time. But this is, could be across multiple teams or on the consultancy side, multiple practices. And it's not just sending them all out at once. Uh, I think with the consultancy, well, you could sort of deal with that by not scheduling work. But it's it, it's then justifying that cost. You want to send that many people to one conference and then having to explain that, it is different technology areas and they're going to be going to completely different sessions and probably won't even see each other until the night. And I think that'll be a hard, that'll be a hard thing to sell. And that's probably why there's going to be a big drop in overall cumulative combined attendance. I, I don't know that, that people from different uh, product uh, support groups or consultancy uh, groups would necessarily stay completely isolated in the sessions they attend. Um, You know, there could be a session on Link and its use of EWS, um, you know, and and some of the exchange people might want to attend and some of the Link people might attend, so you're going to get some crossover there. Oh, yeah, I mean, especially on the five ones. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's a good thing because now you have, you know, people on the other side of the... Uh, the cube wall that you know support a different product group being able to go to the same session together and say, hey, here's how we can, um, you know, kind of utilize this at work and and kind of collaborate after the session. I think there's definitely some advantage there, um, but I don't think it's going to be completely isolated. It's not like, uh, you know, people uh, are only going to attend link sessions or only attend exchange sessions or or whatever. I think that defeats part of the purpose of them having uh, all the events together. Well, I suppose we've got to keep on watching and see uh, how it develops. Uh, but I, you know, I, I hope they do. They're, they're able to retain that sort of branding of trying to keep those mini conferences going. So at least they're there in spirit form, and you know, even from a, an organisation basis. Yeah, and and maybe um, the experience is going to be totally crazy because. Uh, as you saw on Tekken, the, the link booth was just a table where link guys hang out. But uh, at this unified conference, you will have the link product team. You will have a big link booth and exchange booth and everything. So I guess maybe the expo area is going to be quite something to look forward to. Well, what, what one point I made, I suppose, before they did start talking about trying to make sure that you know each conference retains its identity was that analogy of if you go to las vegas there'll be you know three or four different technology conferences on at once and you know people that are going between both uh, sometimes people that are speaking at both and perhaps that kind of that that kind of spirit could be could 
could be kept. So if you're going to have an expo area, have a have one that's attached to the link conference, and maybe may, it might be on the edge of a generic tech ed area, but it it keeps it together. So if you've got vendors that are doing link then you know where to find them and all the sort of link heads will be there but all the but whatever technology you're doing you can still mix in uh so pat's throw me a little bit what's it even called so yeah there's no specific name for it yet it could be TechEd north america with mech link all they've called it is microsoft's unified technology event so yeah we'll we'll see what the brand is going to be a little bit later on. So at the moment, you know, it's TechEd plus all the other conferences all combined into one. It's not like a unified comms conference. And the, the first thing I thought when I heard about it, I thought it was going to be like an Office 365 office conference, but it is combined with TechEd North America. Yeah, just... and, and also System Center, and uh, there's a lot of technologies in here. So it's more like a deployment and productivity conference or something. The, the more I think about it, it just sounds like it's just going to be TechEd with more, with a few <laughs> more days. Because isn't well, that what TechEd is? Yes. Mm. They're just going to call it one conference. Oh, God. Whoa. I, I, you know, I'm... <laughs> that was deep. Color me, <laughs> color me cynical. Oh, I, I hope for the best. <laughs> Let's move on. We'll start with some exchange topics. Feel free, uh, especially Pat being an ex-exchanger MVP, feel free to jump in at, at any time as I go through the exchange topics. Uh, first up of the day, exchange log-level GUI PowerShell script. Uh, so that that sounds like it, it says it, it does what it says on the tin. Uh, so a GUI to set the exchange log-level, uh, which uh, could be especially useful for Exchange 2013 houses. An article from... Tony Redmond, lingering entries for long-departed servers that are retained by Exchange 2013. That's uh, a long article about the kind of things that managed availability might be able to pick up uh, even after servers have disappeared. So registry entries that uh, keep things around a little bit later. Oh, going back to Pat. Sorry, I didn't give you a chance to comment. <laughs> I, I was just going to talk about Zachary's uh, uh, yeah. um, log-level script. So uh, basically, it gives you a GUI with all the different kinds of logging that Exchange can do, and yeah. gives you the option, a little drop-down menu for, or a little, yeah, drop-down menu for each item to uh, set them to uh, whatever level you like. So it's nice to see them all in one spot and have the ability to change them without having to, you know, individually uh, run a bunch of different PowerShell commands. So uh, it, it's nice work. Makes you know, and anytime I like, anytime somebody takes uh, the initiative and uses PowerShell to make administration better, at uh, you know, for the good of the community, I think it's good. Yeah, definitely. Uh, goes back to trying to you know, trying to make all those tasks that uh, are laborious and you don't like doing. If you've got to do it more than once, then write a script for it. And better still, blog about your script because that, that that's the only reason that work. That we started off doing this kind of stuff so blogging about things that you've written sharing with other people a way of recording those kind of scripts and of course the more people that use it the more confidence you'll have that you've uh, written a good script uh, so uh, Outlook 2013 cannot connect to Exchange 2013 using MAPI over HTTP when the proxy is enabled that's a support article thrown in by our onboard Microsoft PFE Johan uh, so check that out uh, if you're having issues uh, after you've enabled uh, MAPI over HTTP. 
or one of you out there. Uh, oh, the hard, uh, the the hybrid configuration was it is broken in Exchange 2013. This is bad. This is. Uh, so, uh, any of you link guys heard about this? I, I've heard about it, but I haven't uh, uh, paid much attention to it. Oh God, this has been the bane of my life for the last couple of weeks uh, across multiple customers. So, the hybrid configuration wizard is basically the bit that configures, you know, send connectors, receive connectors, federation trust, organization relationship settings, all the sort of stuff that you can do manually, uh, or you used to do manually before Service Pack 2 for Exchange 2010. In Exchange 2013, they've made an update on the service side, and that's broken Exchange 2013's hybrid configuration wizard. So Exchange 2013 isn't broken. They've changed something in Office 365, which has made the hybrid configuration wizard on 2013 break. So it falls, it fails with an error. And the only way to fix that is not by them rolling back the change in Exchange Online. Oh, no. You know, once they've made a change, it clearly doesn't get rolled back. No, you've got to raise a support request and you've got to get an interim update to apply to your environment on uh, Cumulative Update 5 or Service Pack 1. You have to apply that to your service and then you can run the hybrid configuration wizard. And they are now releasing those patches but it's been going on for a few weeks. It's a right pain in the arse. Uh, you know, why it's taken so long to fix, why they weren't able to communicate this better to customers, I don't know. But it's it's not great. It's, it's not great for anybody that has to raise change requests before they apply changes to their environment. Uh, because uh, at one point I heard Microsoft wanted people to, to provide logs, which meant that you had to make the change, see it break, to get the logs to send to Microsoft to prove that it was definitely going to break, even though it affected you, for sure, if you were running that version of Exchange. So a bit of a pain in the ass. Uh, one thing that I have done uh, and blogged about is, uh, if you ever need to, and this isn't supported as such, I don't I don't know whether whether it's supported by Microsoft uh, in terms of whether, the, whether your environment will be unsupported if you do it. Effectively, creating a receive connector isn't supported, uh, isn't unsupported. It's just a, a change you might make. Uh, so I've, what I've done, I've blogged about how to walk through the hybrid configuration wizard. What does it do to your environment? Because there was a time not that long ago when if you wanted to perform a hybrid configuration wizard, you did have to do it manually. And this is basically showing you how you can still do it manually if you wanted to. Or if, for example, you had to temporarily put in a hybrid configuration wizard, uh, put it, sorry, put in a hybrid configuration while you waited for Microsoft to give you the interim update and then rerun the hybrid configuration wizard. So, it's, so it, is, it is a bit of a pain. Uh, and... I I may have ran my mouth a little bit about it, but yeah, my, you know, this is an example of where I think Microsoft have been reasonably quick to react, but they perhaps could have communicated the situation a little bit better uh, and considered that the people do need to do these things and they should test properly. They should roll back if it goes wrong and they should make sure that updates are available you know, much much more rapidly when this kind of stuff goes wrong. So, yeah, it's not it's it's not the the greatest hour for Office 365. Can anyone tell this annoyed me <laughs> a little bit? Uh, anyway, so yeah, so if you need to run it, 
just make sure you get that update in advance. Uh, it's easy to get the update, but uh, the other thing is Microsoft do want to know who has applied the update. So if you're a, a consultant and you're going to be doing this for lots of customers, don't just get the don't just get the update once. Get it. Uh, get it for each customer make sure Microsoft know that you've applied it to that environment because if there is any problems with that interim update they'll obviously want to contact your customer who you might not be on site with to get that fixed so you'll need to request it for each and every customer a new change for for the partner relationship I suppose with Microsoft what Microsoft are going to be offering for some of the paid for Office 365 plans is some assistance from Microsoft to help with the onboarding, uh, which is which Ooh. is new. Uh, so at the moment, you get free support with Office 365 from call centers. If you've bought Exchange Online Protection, uh, then you or Foppy, then you'll have got help with onboarding to uh, enable Farpe install all the Dersync components. So it's similar to that. Microsoft are going to help, if you want, with some of the setup in your environment of the basic stuff to help move mailboxes. So my opinion is anything that makes moving mailboxes to Office 365 easier for customers is, in, in, in general, a good thing. There's lots of organizations that have very simple setups and, and consultants and Microsoft partners charge them a lot to do something re really straightforward for them. There's also lots of customers that probably have quite complicated environments that this wouldn't be suitable for. So what, what, do, you, what, what do you guys think? Well, you know, I've got the same concerns that, that are mentioned in, in the, uh, the article that we'll have a link to in this summary page. But, um, you know, several years ago when Microsoft started making a big push, uh, to the cloud, you know, a lot of people raised their hands and said, well, what does that mean for me as a consultant? You know, are you are you saying that we're going to be out of a job? And Microsoft said, no, no, no. You know, companies are always going to need assistance um, migrating to the cloud, and that's where you come in. And now Microsoft is basically saying, well, you know, poo-poo on that idea. We're going to take over that work for you and, and kind of cut you out of the picture. Now, well, obviously, well, it is an you know, war. So the customer gets a choice. So you can have $15 to spend with a partner or MCS, Microsoft Consultancy Services, or you can use the onboarding center. So you, you don't you don't necessarily lose. If you know that your environment is a bit of a mess and you think that, you know, your thousand, two thousand, however many thousand seats is going to be better serviced by having someone on site to do it for you, uh, then you can still do that or mm -hmm. If you think, no, I could do this myself if I had a bit of, you know, if I had a, a, someone to phone who could do it for me, that that would be great. Because if you are a customer who can do it yourself, you don't you don't really get anything for you. You get that funding, but if you don't want to spend it, you can't use it for anything, can you? So that you know that there is the adoption funding. So there is money there to spend with a partner if you want. Instead, it's not. Yeah. I agree, um, but I, I think, and, and I'm sure um, you know everybody here on the call can can attest that you go into an environment and they say, 
um, yeah, we're going to do X, whether it's a migration to a newer version, whether it's a migration to a cloud solution, whatever the case may be, and they say, our environment is rock solid, we just need to do this migration, and then you roll up your sleeves and start looking at things and find out that the underlying infrastructure is a complete mess. And um, sometimes that's known by them, and they're just, you know, uh, trying to downplay it, and sometimes they just don't know. And uh, I think what's going to end up happening is they're going to say, oh, well, we can use, you know, the Microsoft um, uh, method to do this, and then they're going to run into problems because the environment's not stable or whatever the case may be. And then, you know, I think that just fosters a bad uh, a bad taste in their mouth, and then they have to go back and engage a consultant to, to do something that they originally thought could have been done for a lot lower cost. Well, yeah. On the flip side, on the flip side, you're right, and and I agree that some environments where they know it's a complex uh, uh, setup, even if it's rock solid, if it's complex, obviously they're going to need consultants to come in and do this. But well, the thing is, you, you, with that first scenario, you know that there's there's people out there who will go, you know, if I if I get Microsoft to do it, then you know I know I've got a terrible environment. They'll they'll have you know they'll have to fix it for me. I and then they'll probably be quite disappointed and in some cases angry where Microsoft say, well, no, you fix that bit for yeah. first. Because, yep. you know, it's, it is going to, if you know your environment is perfect, but you just don't want to have to learn how to do that bit because it's only going to happen once, then, you you know, you've got to be smart about it, I think. I agree. I, you know, it's it's definitely an option that can solve, uh, save some organizations money. Um, I don't think it's going to be the panacea that um, that some are thinking it's going to be. I, I think there's going to be a little bit of heartburn there for uh, quite a few organizations. And of course, like I said, you know the consultants are kind of up in arms now because Microsoft basically told, you know, said, "Hey, you know, you're going to be fine. You know, we need you to help migrate organizations." Uh, well, if you if you look at these figures, so the, uh, you get help from Microsoft. Uh, they do the onboarding for you, and this is later this year sometime. I don't know when. Uh, from 150 seats upwards. Uh, so if you're a, that you know that small organisation, you've got Exchange 2007, say, uh, patched up to date, and uh, you you know you, you've ran the ID fix tool, you think it's probably going to be all right. Then, if you got the funding, you'd only have two $2,250 to spend with a Microsoft partner. And then you'd have to start putting in your own money. So I would have thought for that kind of size customer, this is going to be the, the Microsoft onboarding help because it's such a cheaper resource is going to go a lot further. However, if you look at and it works this way, so it's fifteen dollars for the first thousand seats and then five dollars for every seat after that. So if we get um, a three thousand user company and we say five times two thousand, then we put on fifteen times. 1,000, so what's that? 25,000. You get $25,000 for your 3,000 user organization. That's actually, that's quite a lot to spend with a partner. And I think mm -hmm. it's going to be really obvious that that money is going to be better spent with a partner than a remote call center or whoever it's going to be that do the onboarding. So I think it, I, I think this isn't something people need to worry about. But one thing it's definitely going to do is focus partners minds on sorting the migration quickly and not expecting more money than they get from microsoft to do it and that i don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing 
I think it's a good thing personally because you know half of what I try and do is try and make the migration to Exchange Online easy and quick. I you know so so I think this is great and I I know what you're saying about partners that have built their business around migration. There is a lot of the business adoption stuff as well. So and some people might think that's rubbish, but there's there's a, a lot of, of work. Because imagine you spend all this money on Office 365, but you're only using Exchange Online and you haven't upgraded the clients. I think he, I think it puts a focus on trying to get trying trying to focus partners' minds on helping customers use all the stuff that they paid for rather than just leaving them with the first bits uh, after they've run out of money. So that, there's, there's more opportunity there. There's more things to do than just migration. Migration is the simple bit that should be done quickly, in my opinion. So, so yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing, but maybe I've just convinced myself of that. So moving on, uh, Microsoft signatures in Office 365. So if you're using Office 365 and you are putting signatures on exchange online uh, and you used to have a on-prem product and it doesn't really work anymore then what can you do if you've got to try and replace that with disclaimers well i've written an article for search exchange exploring most of the options available if you're using the out of the box stuff and uh, the link for that is going to be up uh, alongside the show today how however the, the quick and simple is there's not really a great solution that comes with office 365 to accomplish that the biggest problem is although you know one of the built-in approaches is, is most of the way there whatever happens there's going to be a point that uh, the that the signature gets appended at the wrong place so usually you'd expect uh, when you reply to a message your signature to get appended under where you you know write that your last line of text and above the other person's reply um, but everything that microsoft built in to do this it, at some point we'll try and put the signature at the end of the message like a disclaimer and there's not really a great solution for that even from third-party vendors uh, and really this is walking through what is an offer what you can do to sort of try and hack that to work but at the end of the day there's not a great solution there at the moment the last exchange topic of today's more an office 365 topic and it's really just a, a shout out to bring back as bring us back to this encrypting uh encrypting email uh if you're worried about uh, overseas governments or anyone that's not your organization looking at it bit titan uh who are behind migration with uh, are the third company i think uh after other companies including cypher cloud to bring out their own solution for encrypting everything that goes into office 365 so if you use email in office 365 then everything that goes in and out of that becomes encrypted if you use sharepoint onedrive all the data becomes encrypted so if you accessed office 365 directly then it would just be a whole bunch of gobbledygook you wouldn't be able to see it it'd just be uh plain text characters but uh, but but all a, a big mess <coughs> what this and other solutions like it do is basically act as a reverse proxy a proxy into office 365 that encrypts your data before it goes in there uh, so I, I i think it's potentially a single point of failure and doesn't really work with some of the third-party solutions like uh, Oslo or as it's now called Delve. Uh, 
but potentially if you're going to use office 365 but you're worried that somebody at some point could access the data then this sort of encryption layer that sits in front of it could be useful what do you think guys so, so steve how does that actually work is that trying to encrypt the smtv before it hits office 365 or is it all data i don't even understand how that would work so it all, all the routes in and out of the service go through a proxy service which takes the data encrypts it with your key and then plonks it in so if you were to send a plain text email into it via smtp it would go via this service and then it would get encrypted and land inside the user's inbox in plain text but it but instead of being the original plain text, it'll jumble up the words. And then when you access Office 365, either via ActiveSync, OWA, Outlook, then this layer sits in between and it gets that gobbledygook plain text and then it uh, turns it back into a readable form. That just that doesn't seem viable to me. I mean, like, so if I pick up my email on the iPad... Presumably it doesn't work. If I send an email to someone outside 365, then obviously it can't be encrypted by this proxy. How does it work with SharePoint? I don't understand. So obviously if you forward the message out, then it's caught on the way out and then it's decrypted. With SharePoint, again, it goes through a a web proxy when it's uploaded, then it it encrypts it and then plonks it onto the disk in an encrypted format. Wait, 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 wait. How how is it? How is it decrypted on the way out of Office 365 if yeah, it's destined for another organization? So uh, having looked at the, the Cypher Cloud product, it was basically you have to have a relay device. So the, the, the Cypher Cloud one was you run it inside your data center on a VM. <laughs> this is where it got laughable in a way. So everything for your service has to go through these boxes in and out whether it's SMTP, so you have to build in connectors for inbound connectors, outbound connectors for email, and of course you've got to you've got to direct all your users, set auto discover to point at these boxes, set uh, the exchange, you know, web services URLs to be at these boxes. Everyone will get this as as the proxy into it. So it it works, but if it fails you've got no access. Or if you lose your key, you lose uh, access to your data. But you can't really do that with Office 365. I mean, how do you set an outbound proxy for Office 365? Well, for as an outbound proxy, so you can, if it's email, then you can set the equivalent of a send connector to specify the, the SMTP host that the outbound mail should go to. Okay. I didn't know you could do that in Office 365. So you have... Even, em- even if you get it working with email... Things like obviously you've got search in in OA that's not it's going to be searching the encrypted data, so that would be broken. Yeah, it can't mm-hmm. it can't do that on the fly. You can't use presumably standard mobile devices unless I guess that encryption product's an active sync endpoint and it kind of relays. Exactly, it's but a share of relays. But so 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 okay, so I can see I can see how it bearably work for email, but SharePoint it can't work because that indexes all your documents. So again, the search would be junk, and that's half of what SharePoint is. Mm-hmm. And I presume it can't sit in band for link either. So, so what I've what what I've heard, and I and I won't say which one of these products uh, it was being said in relation to, but uh, a company that manufactures some of these services did say that they think it's not so good because it breaks search. So I can't. I won't say whether that was Microsoft that said it, another partner that said it, a vendor that said it. 
<laughs> you could say that out loud, Tom. Yes, Tom's making me defend it. But <laughs> well, you know, when I like, presentation I like, about one of these services, what do you think I did? You know, I was asking these same questions. Yeah, but, it just doesn't seem. I like. I like the concept. If Microsoft supported something like this, it would be awesome. You you have your keys. We'll encrypt everything in your service with those keys. I don't think the service is built like that at the moment, and I can't see how a third-party product can bolt this on if, and if it be I, even vaguely viable. If only, well, there, if only there was a way to encrypt your data in Office 365. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and here's here's the other problem too. You're essentially giving uh, your keys to a, a third party um, to avoid uh, a different third party from being able to get to your data. Um, so somebody is still going to be able to decrypt your data. I mean, this is just like the Dropbox issue where, okay, yeah, we encrypt your data, but we can look at it. Um, well, supposedly the idea would be that – I know I, I joke about why would you want to run it on-prem if you move into Office 365. But you can – some of, these, some of the, the three solutions that I know of, you can run on-prem or you could run out of a, a, a cheap hosted data center in-country as the endpoint and the proxy. So potentially there's a way to make it, one, in-country, so it's completely within your control, two, run it in your data centers if it's, you know, things like storage that are a problem rather than, the, you know, running it internally. Because uh, there's more reasons to move to Office 365 other than just getting it out of your data centers. I joke that it seems stupid to run this proxy on-prem and then suddenly you've got that single point of failure you know your organization but there's a lot more to it than that there's having to patch servers keep them all up to date all the all the storage there as well so that so you know you you could keep the key but okay. but why not use other technologies to encrypt the data if it's that important uh if if someone said to me what uh, we want to encrypt some of our data in office 365 we want to make sure it's standards compliant uh we I'd say, do you need to encrypt everything? The answer probably is no. And things like S-MIME, I don't understand why that's not the standard for, for more stuff. It's not it's not rocket science to implement. Uh, and, of course, you know, on-premises RMS. So the, the, there's other options out there. And, you know, encrypting email with S-MIME is relatively simple, especially now that you can push, uh, push the public certs into Office 365 for email. Okay. So I'm not defending this, but it's it's what, but but if if this it, if there's going to be solutions out there that help defend your data against prying eyes, then there's some people that I think this will be perfect for. If you care enough about this stuff, you probably wouldn't be going to 365 in the first place. Surely that's the more sensible option. But there's more reasons to move to Office 365 than just. Than just the de the security of the data. Obviously, the security of the data is very very important. But in Exchange admins don't necessarily like having to do regular upgrades, patching. Uh, organizations don't like having to buy a new version of the uh, of the product every few years or getting stuck behind on our old version. It being very difficult. It not scaling to their needs. So there's there's other if you really wanted to get some of those other benefits but it was this that was stopping you to moving, then it could be a potential solution to remove one of those blockers. Data in Office 365 is, is more than likely more secure than on your own premises. And as, as much as we talk about, you know, uh, the, the American government wanting to get in and 
retrieve people's data come on let's face it if you know we're, we're in the uk you know you've got all these nations that are collaborating together to 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 spy and, and enforce you know common laws then if it was in your own data center and you had something really dodgy one and i say this over and over again one you'll probably want to help them get to that data as an organization uh, because as an organization you're probably not corrupt it's probably someone that works there so you'll probably help the us by a proxy of the uk police or you'd let them into your data center or they'd knock down the doors and just go into your data center and take the servers so uh, what difference does it make you know i'd rather i'd rather they just get what they want personally uh, but that, i mean that's going back to our, our our topic above but i do think that there's more to moving to the cloud than just the security of your data. It's going to be very secure where it is. There's not going to be prying eyes going into it. But if that was that was your blocker, then this could be a solution. It doesn't sound like I'm convincing anybody. You should move into sales, Steve. <laughs> that, was, that was an excellent defense of uh, it was, concept. It's kind of like a un- <laughs> half-willing. You know, I, I can see both sides. I, I don't disagree with you. I kind of think it's a bit pointless. I kind of think, yeah, you know... I agree. If you wanted to encrypt everything in Office 365, then why are you moving to the cloud if you were that worried about the data being there? So I, I, you know, I kind of agree, but I'm just trying to, I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm just trying to see both sides of the coin and perhaps my views and your views. There's got to be someone who must think my imaginary view that I'm trying to play the devil's advocate for. I shouldn't bother, should I? Because I... Well, I, I think, you know... You know, and we're we're obviously not uh, saying this is a, a horrible idea. It's just that you know we we have questions about how this works logistically, and um, and, and I think it's it's best for us to uh, you know raise those questions to see, you know, hey, how how does this affect things, or where are the limitations, or you know, what what does it break, you know, what's mobile access like, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's just from you know the the unknown as to uh, uh, you know. Is this going to work or, or not? From, from what I've seen, the only thing that is probably not so good is things like Oslo, because it can't search through the contents. Mm-hmm. Search is not so great because it can't search through the contents, but a lot of these solutions, they're keeping things like the subject lines anyway in the from and to. So if so, you can see if you're searching for an attachment named a certain name, or if you're searching for something with a certain subject, then you should be fine. Uh, and well, oh, one of them, CypherCloud. Apparently, what they do to make search work in OWA is is basically each word is encrypted in plain text into another, you know, random set of characters. Therefore, when you search, what it does is it turns it to that other set of characters. So, search in OWA does work inside the content of messages. So they use a, a set cipher, and let's just hope that the cipher is not compromised. Well, the set cipher is based on your key on your appliance. Okay. Okay, good. So, so yeah, so it's potentially workable, but it what what Tom said about, but why would you then go to Office 365? There, I think there's still reasons to do that, but I kind of it would be well, you probably want to run it in your data centers. You know, I don't hear that, for example. Uh, any of these solutions is IL3 compliant, for example, which is a standard in the UK for secure data. I know it doesn't. It, I've not seen anything that says that would be the case. That I mean, I, I, would any? Do you know about IL3, Tom? 
Uh, you know, I, I hear I hear about it a fair bit, but I've uh, never had to dig into it, to be honest. So, but if a customer said it needs to be IL-3 compliant, and this made Office 365 IL-3 compliant, then that's that, that would tick the box, for example. And they'd say, well, we love all the other benefits, and now we can take Office 365. And... If, and if, if those two things are true and if it works then yeah, yeah that would be quite good yeah exactly i'm just talking crap <laughs> you know because it's not necessarily true uh, but that that's a scenario that i could see that would make this a practical solution yeah well, what, what would be nice is if microsoft met a vendor like this halfway so you could keep keys on prem and have data in office 365 i think that would be interesting well i, I wonder what will happen if the these appeals all fail uh, and Microsoft are in that situation. Maybe they'll buy the best of the bunch. You never know. But yeah, well, so. I think that's probably true. And I think um, I think you'll see some organizations that are already in the cloud start to second guess that that decision to go there. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you see anyone moving back from the cloud? I know we're circling back on that topic. Well, I've I, I've seen that happen before, but um, um, I, I think it's it's entirely likely. That you know, at least some organizations will you know start having some meetings. Hey, is this really the you know the best option for us? You know, in in light of these uh, these court rulings. I suppose we'll see, won't we? Yep. Moving on to link topics then. So uh, this is just a quick mention, a quick shout out. It's not the first guide on building a link lab, and probably but it is the best. <laughs> but it, as Pat said, he's going to love you for that. <laughs> from from our, our editor himself, Andrew Price, a guide on building the complete home link lab with a special focus on using your own internal CA. So if you don't have access to third party certs, then and you want to build your own lab, then this is for you. And it's a, you know, a walkthrough step by step on how to build a complete lab, including all things like System Center as well on top. You know, so it's, it's quite a good guide. And um, yeah. I know Andrew's probably not, you never know actually. He's mad if he does. So say, don't, don't edit it tonight, Andrew, but happy birthday for today. <laughs> I, I will say that you know, having having read through this, it's uh, it's an eight-part uh, series on building a lab. Uh, the first six parts have been uh, published. Um, it's good. Keep in mind, it's for a lab environment. This isn't you know how you would deploy a production environment. But you know, if you want to sit down and learn Link and figure out you know all the nuts and bolts of things, this is this is an excellent series. Tons of screenshots, tons of information. He does a fabulous job of. Uh, uh, of detailing uh, all the different pieces, whether it's uh, how to set, uh, set up a, a Kemp VLM for reverse proxy and monitoring and edge and, uh, like Steve said, uh, SCOM and, um, you know, archiving and Office web apps and everything. So uh, it's a good series to get you up and running and, uh, and let you start kicking the tires. I, I'm not ashamed to admit that I'm following some of it myself as I rebuild my lab. I thought, you know, it's, it is a good guide and it's a good chance for me to go through some of the stuff like SCOM that I hadn't done before. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's really good. And uh, it gets the UC Architects stamp of approval. <laughs> we should have that, shouldn't we? We'll do that for your review. Uh, so, uh, a, a quick a, a quick one. I don't, I don't think we need to debate this. But um, Hyper-V MVP, uh, Aidan Finn, uh, wrote a sort of opinion piece on isn't it time for Link to make way for Skype? Uh, I, I think the answer to that is no, uh, but I, I think the the opinion was more about someone who uses Link only for IM presence and conferencing, 
not uh, not in an enterprise voice way. So, uh, but you know, have, have a read of it and uh, make up your own opinion. Uh, anyone disagree with me or want to play the devil's advocate? Uh, <laughs> come on, Tom, defend defend why it's time for Link to make way for Skype. I tried my best <laughs> with that other topic. Yeah, no, you did a better job than I would. Um, I, I read Aiden's uh, piece, and I've got lots of time for him, loads of good Hyper-V content on his blog. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, definitely. But it didn't seem very well thought out in the kind of customers we're in where we're doing PBX replacement for Link. It was, should there be two cloud offerings, I think was his kind of tone. Um, but, yeah, it didn't really fit with, uh, with Modality's experience of the world of doing lots of Link in lots of big companies. I, you know, I, I think they don't need to combine brands together so much. I'm not sure that has worked out well with Outlook.com and Office 365 Consumer Business, uh, OneDrive for Business. You know, I think that only confuses people. Uh, I think it's good to have a business split and say this is an amazing business product. Yeah, it's a good way to avoid uh, the confusion of users installing the wrong client to do it, try to connect to a link server or or using skype and um yeah link is a quite different product um but um i also see his point of view as the two cloud solutions you have skype and you have uh, link online i think but, link uh, online one is, is for business and one is uh, is for consumers so link online is you know it, it yeah, there's there's some validity in that. I think if I ever explain to to people what Link Online is, if they have never heard of Link before, then it's really easy to say it's it's like Skype for business, uh, and that that's co- sort of gets the the gist of it across for Link Online at least very quickly. So yeah, but maybe from the branding perspective, yeah, but from the client perspective, I, I think there's a bit more to it than than just having that same client and. The adverts, I don't want all the adverts. Uh, the, I, I'm not a fan of the Skype client personally. Uh, but that's that's just me. Yeah, but uh, I, I think Microsoft spent a lot of time thinking about this. How can we how can we uh, cash in on this Skype thing? Yeah. For Link. <laughs> it's not just you, Steve. I don't like the client either. So, so sort of defense on Aiden, who's not here uh, to, to defend himself. So, it, you know, but we'll love the Hyper-V stuff. Moving on. So, assigning link policies to users, uh, to link users based on Active Directory group membership. So, Pat, you've had a scheduled task for doing this. Uh, yeah, past, so I... This, I, I, this is I, slightly different. Right. I, so, as you mentioned, I, I wrote a script that um, enumerates group membership um, and applies a policy and it's run as, uh, as a scheduled task. Um and uh, so what's done here in this method is this is menu-driven, so more as a manual task where you select the type of policy and the group that uh, you want it to apply it to, and it goes out and applies it to all members of that group. And th- th- that's fabulous. I-, I-, I like this idea. So, um, you know, if you have to do this manually, um, you know, take a look at the script, and we'll definitely uh, get a link up on the summary page. Cool. Uh, so, and and this is one. Oh, you know, as as someone that uses Link, this is, this sounds very very useful. Especially when you're dropping down and you're trying to select the conferencing number and you're trying to find the in-region ones, and there's they're just scattered everywhere. Does this fix this? Change Link conferencing darling number display order. Yep. Wow. So here here's an answer to your prayers, Steve. 
fantastic. <laughs> uh, I say we should send this to Microsoft. They should do that in theirs. Uh, that that is that's fantastic. So there, it's that drop down in link when you're you're looking for the local conferencing number. And yeah, so what's that order based on then? The order that it's added in by default? Uh, yes. So as you add them in in the uh, link server control panel or via PowerShell, then those are the orders that they're displayed in meeting requests. And uh, so what Anthony's GUI um, script does is it, it shows you the different numbers and allows you to set the priority, which basically shows you know the order that they're displayed in. So it's uh, it's quite a simple script, uh, very straightforward. But you know that's you know that's what makes it nice. It's uh, you run it, adjust your uh, your cert, your uh, number order, and that's all there is to it. So um, you know if you need to tweak that, that the Anthony's uh, script is the way to go. And another article from Mr. Andrew Price this week, uh, and he's got a, a blog post on installing and configuring the Link 2013 Watcher node. And Stoller, you think this is quite useful? Oh, oh yes. Um, in er every deployment where you have Link and Enterprise Voice, you re really need to have uh, SCUM to to um, manage your or. Uh, maintain and give you some insights into your link solution and the watch node is a huge part of this uh, because it continuously run um, a PowerShell command that's towards your link solution and, and test it with the real users and the watch nodes you can place in different uh, locations even on the internet because it's not a domain joint and can be configured as not a domain joint um, computer. So installing the watch, watch node is uh, it's a good thing to know and uh, bringing this topic up again uh, makes it uh, uh, there in the, in the heads of the link consultants because it's, it needs to be brought up uh, from time to time. Yeah, I think it's completely underutilized as a feature. Um, you know, you can use the synthetic test to test uh, different uh, features and see if they're working, but using a watcher node to automate all that is uh, is the way to go. Um, it, yeah. Unfortunately, it does require a separate machine because it can be somewhat CPU uh, intensive, but, uh, you know, if, if you're all about proactively monitoring your environment, uh, a watcher node's the way to go. Yeah, and in 2013, it uh, got even better because in 2010, for those guys remembering that, um, the errors it sent was uh, was not good, so you had to go back to the machine and and retry to get the full error description. But now in 2013, you get the full error description, and it it could be enough to to find a problem. So um, I, I wrote a blog post about this for some time ago on the Nextop blog, which is now going away, I guess. But uh, on yeah what to do with Operation Manager and, and what to do with Watcher Nodes. So it's uh, it's an awesome topic. You know, what's what's another another nice thing I think that's underutilized in SCOM is the fact that you can send uh, alerts via IM as well. Yeah, get it. did not, you manage to uh, set that up, uh, Pat? I saw you tweeted about it. Uh, I got it. I got it to set up once. There, there are some caveats. I should write something about it, but um, it does work, <laughs> of course, it, you know. Um, but it's nice to get an alert. Uh, um, a little quicker than uh, email sometimes. Yeah, and using Operation Manager and Watcher Node is the only way to manage and maintain your link solution. Uh, if you've got Enterprise Voice, you need to know before the users uh, if something is wrong, and if something is about to go wrong, you need mm -hmm. to fix it uh, as fast as possible. So, uh, lots of link customer benefits, apparently, with Plantronics as a service. So, uh, this this is headsets as a service, uh, I, I hear. 
that's uh, an interesting one. Uh, so has anyone done a bit of reading on on what this is? Is it uh, is it what it sounds like? Uh, leasing headsets? It, well, it's not just headsets. It's uh, it's endpoints. So um, head, headsets, uh, cameras, uh, everything that uh, Plantronics has. Um, you can you can forecast your costs, kind of spread them out over a, a you know a lease period, and make sure that uh, your users all have uh, certified devices for Link. So, what what would be the major benefits of doing this? Do, does this mean that when that when there's a, a new device comes out, then everybody's going to get it, uh, or is it just fulfilling the the needs to make sure that if you grow quickly, you have uh, have the right number of uh, headsets or desk phones or conference devices? Well, I think, uh, and there's there, there's not a lot of information out about this yet, but I, I from my take on it is basically making sure that, you know, your organization can choose uh, some specific devices that um, you want the end users to be able to have. This ensures that the users have those devices, takes care of all maintenance and costs and, and uh, uh, replacements as needed uh, through the course of the lease. Okay, but... Uh, if you if you buy these kind of endpoints anyway, you buy them with a support contract to make sure that they're replaced quickly. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. My my understanding is this is a, a little more cost effective uh, using it as a service uh, than just outright buying them. Uh, kind of the lease versus purchase method. But um, you know, like I said, there's there's not been a lot of information that's come out about this. Uh, the only thing I've seen so far is uh, is a press release from Plantronics. Cool. Sounds uh, like a good uh, opportunity for Plantronics partners to to uh, offer their customers. Uh, I think you know. I think if you're going to do like uh, something like Office 365, where you just have this recurring cost for that service, then you know having this uh, Plantronics uh, uh, as a service uh, would go in uh, real nicely with that. You know, kind of uh, um, you're you're able to kind of forecast those costs and and have a lower um, entry point than if you're buying all these devices up front. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, a lot of the time, these Office 365 projects, people will do Link, but they don't really bother into budget buying all the, the endpoint devices because Link Online can be pretty rubbish if you don't have the right devices uh, to, to use. You know, if people are just using Link via their laptops, internal speakers, then it's horrible, echoey. It's a terrible experience. Especially and that's true. That's true not only with uh, Link Online, but on-prem as well. Yeah. You've got to have the right devices in order to have a quality experience. But, but you know, as someone that does a lot of Office 365 projects where there's Link Online, then obviously it's in as this is quick to implement, it's it's a no-brainer, let's do it. But there's not so much in terms of what should we do about devices, whereas a traditional Link on-prem enterprise voice deployment, there's going to be an expectation of some sort of device, whether it's a headset or a desk phone. But you know, Link Online, not not so much. But of course, this kind of offering, yeah, I suppose that I could see where that could fit in, uh, because it does need to be thought out from the outset. And it, it especially when you're piloting these services, having the right devices makes mm-hmm. a, a big difference to their onboarding experience. Uh, and when they haven't got it, then it's you know, terrible, echoey, horrible conference calls versus their existing conferencing system that uses the spider phones. Uh, on their old PBX system. So, yeah, yeah, I, I see that. I, I can see where that could fit in. 
Well, and you, and you made a very good point in that you know some organizations don't um, don't think about what their endpoint cost is going to be, and in some organizations that the cost of your endpoints can be a considerable percentage of your entire deployment costs. Um, but but if it's a case of you know being able to effectively sort of budget for a replacement device, whether that's going to be, you know, you know, hundred pounds worth of device per user across three or five years, then, you know, I can, I can see where leasing it might make more sense mm-hmm. because it, it is a considerable cost, but probably a lot cheaper than, uh, you know, the WebEx solution that they're using at the moment. Yeah, it'll be nice to see uh, some more information about them because, you know, I, as, as I start thinking about leasing, I, I think about, you know, when you go to the car dealership and you look at some of the lease return cars and they're not they're not the best quality cars coming back, you know, what are they going to do with these devices when the lease is up? Do they, do they go back <laughs> to Plantronics and do they wind up on eBay somewhere with a bunch of earwax stuck to them or, or, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe they'll, or what? Maybe there'll be our, our conference giveaways. That's that's what they'll send us <laughs> next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, next next year in Chicago, uh, yeah. everybody gets a free used headset. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> come on, guys. You've got to come to America for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, Link Snom Configuration Manager for all your client policy entry needs. Um, yeah, so um, uh, James Cousin, who we've mentioned a zillion times on the, on the podcast here, he's come out with some really cool uh, GUI uh, scripts for uh, link management, has come out with uh, the SNOM Config Manager, which basically allows you to uh, have a little screen pop up, little GUI, uh, and allow you to select um, different settings for SNOM phones and push them out all via PowerShell. So uh, a nice little addition, you know, uh, like I've said before, anytime you can automate some administrative task or make it easier, uh, life is good. So, hats off to James again uh, for another uh, another cool tool. Cool. And Microsoft has released the July 2014 cumulative update uh, for Link Phone Edition. That's out now uh, to to be downloaded. Uh, so, is that a reasonably standard update, uh, or is there anything special in this? Um, I, the only thing I noticed about this was they did not release a version for the um, CX700 series phones or the IP8540s. Um, that that's pretty rare. Usually, you see uh, all four dates come out for the for the different uh, groups of phones, whether it's the Astra phones or the HP phones or the the CX500, 600 series, as well as the CX700 and um, IP8540s. Um, so I, w- I was kind of uh, wondering what's going on, but um, yeah, basically just some some minor updates. Um, you know, Microsoft's been pretty good about coming out with these uh, uh, on, a, on a pretty good schedule. So um, try them out, and if you uh, if you need a script to help deploy those, we'll get a link to that on the summary page as well. And Microsoft have selected 911 enable for Link Online dedicated. This is probably quite niche news. But, uh, it's snooze news, yeah. 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 So, Link Online dedicated is like um, super huge companies uh, having their own Link Online instance, I guess, and they bring features in there all the time. And uh, now they are have enabled nine one one calling. So, cool. Now, yeah. Know. So, so as a dedicated um, online. Um, deployment. It's basically set completely separate hardware from the normal um, Link Online 
infrastructure. So where we see this, like uh, Stolly said, is uh, you know uh, really big companies that want stuff uh, on their own infrastructure, not on their own infrastructure, but on dedicated infrastructure. Um, so this would be a, a good fit for them. And of course, uh, uh, 911 enables is a great company to work with. But uh, my only concern there is uh, anybody that's thinking about going to Link Online Dedicated is be prepared to wait. Um, it takes quite a while for them to spin up that infrastructure for you. And a new Link PowerShell tool, uh, Link 2013 Contact Backup and Restore GUI. Yay! Good stuff. Uh, Polycom UCS 5.1 uh, for VVX phones. That's that's huge because now it supports the sidecars. Cool. And our final link topic of the day. Using Link like a Link Pro with Stolle Hansen. Well, thank you, Steve. Um, yeah, it's the Link Pro segment, uh, and um, I've written a couple of blog posts about how to use Link like a Link Pro, and this is about uh, you Link Pros out there, and maybe something you don't want to deploy to or, or, or all your users, or or want to recommend to all the companies you talk to if you're a consultant, but something you can do to... Uh, make yourself more productive uh, in the link uh, environment and uh, do some cool stuff. Typically, these um, uh, tips apply to the desktop client. Typically, have some registry settings uh, applied to them, and you need to run some scripts and stuff. This time, though, I wanted to talk about devices. Uh, we talked about the um, Plantronics as a service. Uh, yeah. Devices and um, that's a good thing uh, if they uh, and it helps customers choose good devices and uh, devices may could be an Achilles heel for a link deployment as you talked about uh, you can have this awesome link online solution but uh, you use your built-in computer microphone and uh, and it all falls and the, the house of card falls so. And using good devices is is critical. Definitely. I mean, so, so someone said to me the other day, I hate using Link. Whenever I use Link, the conference call quality is always bad. Everyone's echoey. And, of course, they're not using the right kind of devices. And I, pl I, I played some of our podcasts to say, no, you know, Link is, is reasonably good quality. I mean, this is recorded on Link Online at the moment. It, it's all down to the, div the device you use. Right. So... Um as a Link Pro, I, I try to use different devices for different situations. So at the office, I like to use a headset. And at the, at the headset, I want to be, I want to play music uh, with reasonable quality, and I want to use dual uh, ears so I, I can block out the office noise. I'm in an open office landscape. Right now, I use the LiveChat LX3000, which is actually a Skype headset. And I'm not happy with it. Uh, it's it's not a good link headset. It's it's not optimized for link, so it uh, it won't join as a link device. It just joins as a generic device, and it um, doesn't work really well in the link call. If I plug it out and in, it's not my primary headset anymore, and uh, so it's actually not that good. But um, I can I can listen to music and do link calls. But if someone has any better USB-based headset with, with good sound for music and for conferences, let me know. Do you guys have any preferences there? I've got a, so I, see, I seem to have a Plantronics bag of tricks um, that uh, I'm lucky enough to hang, uh, have around. But I thought you were going to say that you've got one of these. I'm just, 
I'm not wearing it right now. <laughs> so you're actually going to show me that? Uh, yeah. Sound effects. I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we hear a zipper opening. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, guys. I'm just getting it out. <laughs> um, so I'm just showing this to the microphone so you can't see it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I've got my Plantronics. Uh, oh, what's it called now? I, I, I can't remember the name of it. Um, so I, I expected it would be written on it, but it's yes, it is. There we go. Uh, Blackwire C720M. Uh, that's that's one of the ones that I use, and I think that's that's the one I'll bring with me if I want to bring some headphones and I want to listen to music. It's not as good quality as the Sennheiser headphones I've got on at the moment, um, but it's adequate. It's more than adequate for listening to music, and of course, it integrates really well into Link. So if I get a call, then of course it shows I'm in a call. It mutes my music, the Plantronic software, uh, puts it pauses iTunes. It does all that kind of stuff for me automatically. And then when I get off the call, it uh, resumes the music playing. If I take the headset off uh, or put the headset on, it knows that I want to join or get rid of a call. And it's got Bluetooth as well, so it can connect to my phone. So if someone dials me on my mobile then my music stops playing i can answer the call and it also updates my link status to show i'm in a call even though it's on the mobile so i think that's why this is a great headset well i will i need to try that out what's really cool and we we reviewed the 720 on a, on a previous episode um is you can disconnect the cable at the at the uh, control unit and it basically becomes a bluetooth um headset with a kind of a dongle hanging down with uh, the little control unit so it looks kind of you know it's it it takes a little getting used to uh, having that but um you know like steve says it integrates with bluetooth real well you can switch between phone calls between link and bluetooth uh on the fly it's really cool how is the airbuds do they uh, um, cover your entire ear or, or is it more like around the ear it's uh, it's on the ear. It's definitely not over the ear. Yeah. So um, on your ear, it sort of fits over. So the, I suppose the size is um, is is it doesn't encompass your ear like uh, the Sennheiser ones that I'm wearing. So yeah, over, because well, what I would like is a headset that really engulfs you in in your own environment. Uh, I I actually wanted to try some of the the gaming headsets. Those uh, really expensive with chat and crazy good sound but um, none of them really works well with Link so but uh, it's not completely over it's it's it, you know it's, it's quite comfy on the ear so it covers it over uh, it's, it's squishy so it, the idea is it cuts out the background noise uh, these the, the you know the proper music listening headphones that I've got are meant to do that uh, already so they you know they, they cut out all the noise so they're, they're not bad they're they're a good good compromise for a good all-round sort of headset cool well that's a good tip i will uh, try it out um for home uh, i actually use a dex headset uh, i use the logitech wireless headset dual h820e uh, it's not for music it's for uh, uh, link calls and it's deck based so i can move around because when i work from home i like to yeah move around <laughs> Uh, my house. I can go get some coffee. I can go get a mail while in a conference, uh, and uh, yeah. So how far can you go then? That, I suppose uh, all 100 meters, about 100 meters. Yeah, so, I've I had uh, new windows installed last week in my house, and so I needed to take a call while they were working on my house. And I I took my 820, put it on, walked downstairs, out the front door, down the street, 
and uh, was able to get away from the noise a little bit long enough to have a call. So easily several hundred feet. That's not um, bad. Yeah, they, they say it's supposed to be 300 feet but um, or 100 meters, and um, uh, and I've gotten pretty close to that before I start running into some, some issues, and it's it's crystal clear. So the, eight, the 820 is a great, great headset, and it's got a little indicator at the end of the mic boom to show that you're on mute. So how much do those cost, roughly, in dollars or euros? Uh, you need to check up your local uh, yeah. online store. That's <laughs> covered. I don't know. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's it's good. And uh, actually, I cook dinner while talking uh, to this, and that's uh, it's it's a lot it's um, a lot better than Bluetooth because uh, my Bluetooth uh, knocks out when I go downstairs, and uh, so it's. It's this is really the problem I have. So I, most of the time I use my UC Legend for both, doing the same sort of stuff apart from listening to music as the other Plantronics headset. But of course, if I want to stay on a link call, I have to walk around the house with my Ultrabook in one hand to keep me connected because I can't even get out of the room without it cutting out uh, right. on Bluetooth. A, a decked headset would solve so many conference problems for me. Yeah, you should try it out. Uh, I really love it. But I suppose not it's stationary music. though, so it works for your home environment. It's not something you would bring uh, with you, but or or in your office, of course. Um, but can, can you use it with Link? That's the thing. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's Link uh, optimized for Link, so everything works. Uh, the mute button, the hangout button, the answer, everything. Cool. Actually, I think it's actually certified Link. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, so um, and then I have. Um, uh, for when I'm on the move, not using my office headset or my home headset, I use, uh, of course, a Bluetooth headset. And right now I'm using the uh, Jabra Motion UC-MS, which is um, yeah, the Jabra one of the Link um, Bluetooth headsets. Connect both to your computer and your mobile phone. And what I like about this is you have this microphone um, Boom. Uh, I'm not sure what it's called, really. But you can close it, and then the headset is off. And you say battery. So when you put it away at the end of the day um, and uh, get it up in the morning, it's still got uh, talk time in it. And that has always been my problem with Bluetooth headsets, because they always run out of uh, power. Uh, and so this is the headset I've been using the longest uh, of all the Bluetooth headsets I'm, I have tested. So I really like this. So is there anything you use for a portable speakerphone uh, if you want to do you know, around-the-room conferences and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that was my next, next scenario. And um, for I, as a UC Pro or Link Pro, I, um, all, I, I attend a lot of projects, uh, project meetings uh, at customer sites and... Uh, uh, usually they don't have a conferencing solution. They are about implement link and uh, bringing with a speaker um, phone um, works really good. So right now I use the old Jabra Speak 410, uh, which uh, is the old, the first, uh, the best speaker phone that's out there and but now you got some something something from Logitech the P720 and and Sennheiser the SP20 and all of those work really good when uh, in a conference call uh, where there are several people in the room and you have to bring in other people into the uh, meeting how, how big are these are they put in your bag do they have batteries in use bluetooth <laughs> 
No, they are USB-based, so they are powered through your uh, PC when you plug them in. Yeah. And uh, no, they're not big. Uh, I don't notice bringing it with me, so it's it's a must-have for any Link Pro out there. Yeah, but, I, I, I carry a 410. I love it. It's a fabulous uh, um, device, awesome quality audio. Um, it's it's nearly ent- entirely impossible to get it to have any feedback, and it makes a fabulous microphone into your computer for things like recording audio in OneNote. Um, so yeah, yeah and also it's, good it's music USB, okay. uh, music box in a hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, um, they they have a newer version, the 510, which is Bluetooth. Um, yeah. So you can get a little further distance away from your computer with it, but obviously it requires a battery. Yeah, but, but uh, I I like the Sennheiser approach because they don't have Bluetooth on their speakerphone. They do have a jack plug and the USB plug. So the jack plug is uh, the one time you need to do with your phone, uh, just a phone call and have everyone in the room hear what the guy is saying. And, um, of course, the USB. Bluetooth, well, usually you have your computer with you, so it's it's not that far reach. No, but Bluetooth would work great with your um, your cell phone too. Yeah, sure, but you have to connect it. Well, the one I'm using is the because uh, uh, they sent it me uh, the Plantronics Callisto. Oh, you sent it me, didn't you, Pat? Uh, Callisto 620, and that's that is not so good for music. Um, it doesn't work with music, so I've, I've tried playing music <laughs> through it before, um, but it was just really bad quality. It was doing some sort of optimization. On the yeah. audio, I think. Yeah, it's uh, important. It needs to be working with music as well. Uh, I have a, another one that I use for that, which was is quite a good Bluetooth speaker. But it, it's, it is good for a little conference phone, and it's small enough that it's you know it's pocketable. So I take it with me everywhere. Uh, the, the only the, for the conferencing type devices, the only thing that I'd like to be able to do that I can't is. Uh, bring someone in via video easily without having to use the laptop or share the whiteboard and that's the and i I can bring someone in with a conference phone like this, but I can't bring someone in for the whiteboarding uh, or sharing video so easily do you have a do you have a pocketable <laughs> one of those well you <laughs> Cock- do have pocket a lrs you can buy a computer you know and uh, and hook up your link client I know, connect, connect I know. your your PC to a, a projector and have it project on on the wall. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're talking you can about show laptops. Off your, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're well, like desktops, Steve. But you can fold them in half, put in your bag. They're awesome. Yeah, and, and now you get like well, someone could have told me about this. You can actually bring them, have them in your hand, and you have. <laughs> Lots of features I'll, on there. I'll give you so an example. We're, you know, I was, I was doing <laughs> Disney the day, and one of my colegues was an internal meeting. So I was using, uh, I was using the Callisto thing to bring him in. Great audio quality. But we want, we were doing some some whiteboarding stuff. I wanted to to share the video uh, so he could see, but. I had to put my laptop at a funny angle and keep it there, and I was also trying to move the mouse and stuff like that. Uh, so you know, a webcam on a stick that went into one of these conferencing devices would be really good. Yeah, you could bring a, a, a detachable webcam with you and place it somewhere in the room. Well, there's not um, one that's designed for that kind of scenario. I, I'd have to bring some, you know, a stick, a little tripod or something, and then blue tack a webcam onto it. it, it that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so, uh, you, you're talking about a uh, mobile conferencing 
system with video, whiteboarding, and uh, audio. That's a, that's a business case right there. Well, yeah, you you know, I, I want to be able to turn up anywhere and do that kind of thing because I want to show people how it's supposed to work. Because I, you know, I've seen and probably done lots of bad link online demos uh, where you've not got good connectivity and you've right. not got good audio and things like the Callista, they they give you a better experience when you're just trying to show it and when you're just trying to work with it wherever you go. And that that was one area that that I'd like to see something. And uh, and you suggest I buy a laptop. Right, that or a tablet. You can look up the Surface from Microsoft. It's uh, actually quite good. Well, yeah, that would have been a bit overkill. Goodbye. Uh, so, you know, what, what do you think of the Surface as a conferencing device, as a portable conferencing device? Is it any good for that kind of scenario? Well, to, <laughs> you're going to have people crowded around you with that device if you if you can't display content on a larger screen. Uh, well, for for example, uh, I've got a Surface. I always bring that around with me. Um, but I could use that as the conferencing device, and I could join from my laptop to the meeting and show mm-hmm. on that, plug it into a screen, but it's got a webcam and it's got a speaker and it's got a microphone. wonder if you've used one as a conference device like that and whether it's any good. Yeah, I, I think it works great, as does the Dell Venue Pro, which is yeah. you know, the, an 8-inch device, um, you know, fits in, you know, cargo pockets. Um, both of those, I think, work great as a conferencing device. I mean, you're somewhat limited to the smaller screen for seeing fine detail in shared content, but um, um, you, you know, you get with with either device, you get full functionality of of the link client. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, lots of stuff you can do with the smaller devices now, uh, and it's a good idea to to have several devices with you so you can actually do the conference. But uh, maybe recommend having a external webcam. Like bring you with you a Logitech webcam or or something like that. But for most purposes, good sort of decked headset, uh, some sort of little conferencing device that plugs in via USB, uh, and something you can listen to music on. Uh, sort of your core three things that cover most scenarios. Then. Yeah, and and then you need to have a backup device. Like when your your headset, your Bluetooth headset is depleted for battery. And you don't bring with you the office headset because that's in the office, it's too big. Uh, and the home headset is at home. So you need to have a backup device. And uh, for that, I use a uh, really small device. Uh, it doesn't have any footprint in your bag. Uh, it's the Yabra UC Voice 250. Um, I like it a lot. Uh, I use it when uh, when when I have nothing else to use, and it's good good qualities. Nothing I won't use regularly, but uh, it's a it's a good backup device. Actually, it saved my life uh, here the other day in in Stockholm. Uh, I was uh, moving away from a uh, link workshop, and I was meeting my wife. And I'd never been to Stockholm before, so we were me- meeting around, but my mobile was dead. My Bluetooth headset was at home, so how could I contact her? I could probably try to find some Wi-Fi spot and try to call her with Link, but um, I hooked up my computer, hooked in the headset, and uh, logged on to Link using uh, my 4G built-in SIM card and called her. Works fine, and uh, it was a good backup. I was happy I had it. So it literally saved your marriage? Yeah, literally. Literally. So it's uh, I love it. <laughs> cool. So, well, uh, so so is that you done for uh, using Link like a Link Pro this week? Yep, 
It is. So we'll be right up with that uh, alongside uh, this on the blog uh, for the show. So, uh, reviews this week. We've got one review uh, from Pat uh, of the Logitech CC3000E. Yeah, and this is uh, a nice unit for uh, smaller conference rooms, say, uh, you know, 10 people, 15 people tops. Um, it's a, uh, a brand new unit that was. Uh, first announced and first displayed at the Link Conference this year. Uh, and it's basically comprised of a console unit um, that sits on the table, has a, a couple rows of buttons on it, some camera controls, and a small LED screen, uh, as well as a, kind of a perforated metal top that contains the microphones and, and speakers. Uh, and then there's also a, uh, a remote camera that has a uh, pan-tilt-swivel uh, mechanism on it. And then the last part is um, a small hockey puck sized uh, device where all the cables come together and the, and the power supply plugs into it. Um, and it includes a remote control uh, that allows you um, basically all the options that are on the console unit, um, including all your, your camera controls, pan, tilt, swivel, um, volume controls, mute, your hook uh, on and off hook buttons and things like that. Um, this is a really cool unit. Um, it retails for, uh, the list price is, uh, is $9.99, um, and I've had it now for about two months, and I've used it almost, on almost every call I've been on. Um, and then during the month of uh, July, internally at Modality, we had a challenge to, to try and add video to every uh, call that we were on. And so I, I got real used to using this thing. It's real simple to use, uh, to use in a conference room. Um, uh, exceptional quality coming out of the uh, the speakerphone. You know, obviously people can tell that you're talking on a speakerphone, you know, those, those people at the other end. Um, but it's it's clear that the camera does uh, full 1080p, supports uh, H.264 and SVC, um, a really nice unit. I, I would recommend it for anybody that's uh, looking for a small uh, conference room solution that's link compatible um, you so know, on, a, on a small how portable, budget. How portable is it? Uh, well, it's not something that you'd you know throw in a backpack. Okay. Um, so this yeah, I mean, it's not not from a size perspective, but this doesn't you know, solve uh, that problem I was on about then. I was, like, I was looking <laughs> no, at it. I'm like, this, this looks quite pocketable. You know, it's plugged in via USB. It's got the couple of cables going. It, it's not the thing I'm going to bring around then. It's not portable in that respect. No, I mean, I'm, I'm going to take one to a client site in uh, in a few weeks when we start doing conferencing just to do a demo, but it's not something that you would stick in your backpack and, and carry with you uh, day to day, even even if you're crazy like me and carry one of everything in your backpack, um, because it's, it's not really meant to be portable. I mean, the, the camera unit, um, I don't this think be... we'll hold up to it. Would this be a bit like where, you know, some organizations, they book out projectors and stuff like that. They have like two or three that they bought in a cupboard. And then if you need one for a meeting, you take, say, this or a projector. Yes. Yeah, you, you could um, definitely use this, move it around from, from room to room if you wanted to. Um, you know, small room, I use it in my home office. Uh, it, it works great. Uh, it does support uh, far-end camera control, so I could... Uh, um, release camera control to one of the participants on a call, and, and uh, with a small uh, software installation, they could control the, the camera. Um, so it, it, it's really nice, really straightforward, easy to use. Um, 
I, I really couldn't find uh, too many issues with it. I, I did see one issue where if I join a conference in which I'm automatically muted when I join, um, the indicator on the console unit didn't necessarily match that. Um, it's got kind of a, a, a ring around the, uh, the control unit that's either red when you're muted or blue when you're not, and uh, I would see it every once in a while come on as blue when I was truly muted. Um, kind of a minor issue, but, you know, it, it can lead to a little bit of confusion, and I know the, the folks at um, uh, Logitech were looking into that. But uh, other than that, uh, it, it works really well. The remote control, I, I, you know, constantly playing with it from, you know, either right in front of the unit or, or across the room um, for adjusting the camera. Uh, the, the video was, I got some, some comments um, even from internal staff that, uh, that the video quality was, was really good. So um, a, a great unit for, for the price point, and uh, I would recommend it. Cool. So does it get the UC Architects stamp of approval? It does. It is Hooray! UC Architects approved. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a it's a great uh, device, and um, it's a it's a good alternative for a meeting room for with Link. Yeah, it's got a good a good field of view. So I mean, if you're in a good conference room with you know kind of a long table like we we typically see, it, it picks up everybody. And of course, it can move around and tilt like 130 degrees and pan 260 degrees, and uh, it's got a 10x digital zoom and. So uh, all, all the bells and whistles. Cool. So uh, moving on to our last segment of the show today, we're going to talk through some of the events. So as always, you can find out about the US-based Link Users Group, linkusersgroup.com. Uh, we've also got the Norwegian Link Day uh, coming up uh, in Oct uh, October as well. And I hear that uh, you and Tom are going to be making the, the trip over, Pat, to see Starlink. Yeah, I think uh, you're the only one on this call that's not going to be there. Uh, well, I'm just seeing if I can get approval uh, for it at the moment, so stay tuned. Uh, I might be coming along, um, not to speak or anything like that, but maybe join the, the live recording. Uh, so I'll keep my fingers crossed for that. And let you know well, go go easy on me. Uh, this will be my first international trip. I'm, I'm having uh, nightmares of winding up you know, face down in some Oslo alley somewhere and without my passport. No, I, I will take care of you, no problem. <laughs> so the link, Norwegian Link Day is uh, going to be an awesome event, I guess. Um, I think actually we have about um, seven MVPs, Link MVPs, coming to talk about uh, Link and stuff. Um, and it's called Norwegian Link Day, and it was meant for being a Norwegian event, event for Norway. But uh, now since you have so many international speakers, uh, we are going to do all the technical tracks in English. That means uh, if anyone out there wants to attend Norwegian Link Day, they can and, and understand most of it. And uh, I'm also uh, psyched about uh, us having a live recording there. And uh, with lots of um, uh, MEPs and, and the user architects there, it's uh, going to be a great recording and, and lots of fun. And our final event that we'll mention is uh, mine, Andrew's, and uh, Jason Wynn's UC Birmingham User Group, uh, which we're running the the first one after switching over from uh, doing the Office 365 Midlands User Group. Uh, we'll be running at the same price uh, on the August uh, the 13th at the Priory Rooms Meeting and Conference Centre in Birmingham. Uh, I'll be uh, joined talking this on that evening by Michael Van Horenbeek. Uh, he'd better turn up. And 
uh, we'll be talking about uh, multi-forest migrations to Office 365. And uh, I believe Andrew will also be uh, talking as well that evening. Uh, so uh, that starts at 6 and check us out on www.ucbug.co.uk. There's still a few tickets to be grabbed. And that's that's all for this week. Uh, so thank you to my co-hosts uh, and thank you in advance to Andrew for editing the show. And let me remind you that this UC Architects episode is sponsored by Instant Technologies, experts in enterprise click-to-chat and e-discovery solutions. Instant Technology announces Instant Chime for Microsoft Link. Transform your service desk with Chime and move your support operations from endangered species to wise enterprise. Start your chime trail today at www.adchime.com and join the conversation on twitter via at team instant and just to remind you enow is offering all uc architect listeners a free 50 dollar amazon gift card when you install mailscape for exchange or uniscope for link enow's award-winning dashboard help admins quickly and effectively monitor servers and create custom reports try mailscape or uniscope's free 21-day trial and get a $50 gift card and see just how eNow makes admin life simplified. Simply click on the link on the blog to sign up. And finally, before we go, as ever, we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website today at www.theucarchitects.com or follow us on Twitter at The UC Architects. Be a friend and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash The UC Architects. And find us on LinkedIn. Join our group, The UC Architects. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, you'll find us in the iTunes store. Search for us in the new Windows Phone 8.1 podcast app or subscribe to the podcast using the RSS feed and your favourite podcast downloader. And of course, see our website for links to everything on the show today. We'll see you back for the next episode with Pat Hosting. Thanks for listening. Thank you.